We've been talking in the first chapter of Romans about a very serious subject, the wrath of God. And we're actually going to finish the first chapter today. Isn't that exciting? You guys are terrible. I was expecting to hear, no, no, move, let's take our time, we're going too fast. You ought to have the whole first chapter memorized by now, right? Yeah? How many people do? The whole first chapter is memorized already. I'm the only one? There's two of us? All right, praise God. How many have a good portion of the chapter memorized? Two more. Three more, four more. How many have some of it memorized? Good, all right. We're making some progress. Keep it up. It's a worthy exercise to memorize the Word of God, especially the book of Romans. Powerful things. God will speak to your heart. Now, as we've been talking about the wrath of God, we've been talking basically about God being angry. And we've been looking and seeing, uh, uh, looking at the bad news, how bad things are. The question I think that is reasonable, logical to ask is, how bad are things, really? On the surface, they're not probably too bad, are they? Things are not too bad. They're okay. We're getting by. See, things seem to be hanging together, right? Well, let's look a little more closely and see how, thing, how bad things really, really are. As Paul describes them, as the Holy Spirit speaks through him. As we started off in the 18th verse some weeks ago, when we began to describe and to talk about the wrath of God, I, I commented that, that it's important for us to understand God's wrath and how his wrath is revealed. It's important for us to appreciate how angry God is with men. Because if we have no appreciation for his anger and his wrath, we can have no appreciation for his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. I heard a comment this week of some fellow in our congregation was saying, you know, I've been coming here for a year and I haven't heard anything that's made me turn around He says, until you started talking about the wrath of God. He said, I understand a little bit more now about what my forgiveness means. And I am much more grateful for what God has saved me from. Not only the wrath to come, but the wrath, Paul says, that is being revealed from heaven day to day. against all the godlessness and wickedness of men, Paul says, who suppress the truth, the truth of God, by their wickedness. They love darkness more than the light. And he said, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, and Paul names them, his divine nature, and his eternal power, get this, have been clearly seen, 
being revealed through that which has been made so that, and this is terrifying, so that men are without excuse. No man can stand before God on judgment day and say, I didn't know. I didn't understand. No one explained it to me. Because God will say, I revealed my glory to you through creation. You are without excuse. All men are accountable. They are accountable for the light which has been revealed to them, and if they respond to that light, more light will be given. Paul says all men are without excuse. He says, although they knew God, although they knew Him, they knew Him experientially, they neither glorified Him as God, nor did they give thanks. They rejected God. And he says, and their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their thinking becomes futile. They, they don't know what's right. And what emanates from that is an emptiness in their life. We describe it, we use the word meaninglessness to describe the darkness and the emptiness that comes from futile thinking, vain thinking. How many of you, incidentally, read the LA Times uh, Friday morning, Friday morning edition, the issue, uh, the article on the yuppies, did you see that article? The young, upwardly mobile, new generation. Incredible article. The sum and the substance of the article is this. It was two or three pages long. I was fascinated by it. Because here is a whole group of people in our country. They're approaching middle age, 30s and 40s. They are incredibly successful financially, educationally. They are well-situated socially. And yet they are incredibly dissatisfied and frustrated. And they don't know why. Their lives are empty. The words that they use to describe their situation is they say, there is no meaning in my life. I'm not finding any meaning in my work. Is this all there is? I've pointed my whole life toward this goal, and now I've got here, I've all this money, all this success, all these possessions. This is it. And the article went on and on and on to describe how while they have the success, there's no fulfillment. And they had hoped to live fulfilled lives once they achieved the great goals of education and financial success. They're empty. Their lives are meaningless. And then as you read on in the article, the, the person who wrote the article has interviewed all manner of people who are proposing solutions. All the psychologists and psychiatrists and the modern gurus of thought and so forth. 
And there's every manner of solution being proposed. Well, you need to change your career. Huh. Change my career? I worked my whole life to get to this place. Well, it's dissatisfying. You need to change your career. That's obvious the solution. Well, you need a change of life situation. Maybe marriage isn't the way for you. Maybe you just need to take a long vacation. Things, things will be better when you get back. They're proposing not a change in the basic problem. They're proposing just a change in the circumstances. They said, change your circumstances. And when you change the circumstances, your personal problems will be taken care of. Or maybe we can make you feel better. Take these antidepressants. Chew up some Valium. That'll help you. Oh, yeah, that'll help you. And people are running off to all sorts of, of different kinds of remedies. They're becoming alcoholics, foodaholics, drug addicts. The cocaine abuse is insane. You know why? People are empty. They can't stand the pain of personal emptiness. And they are doing anything and everything to alleviate the pain. You know what Paul says in his first chapter? He says, when men reject God... Their thinking becomes futile, and they become empty inside. Their life is meaningless. He goes on and says that although they claim to be wise, they are literally moronic in their thinking. They're calling the darkness that they're living in the light. They're saying, but my guru says. And they really believe they're in the light. And they're in the midst of darkness. They can't see it. Although they claim to be wise, they're morons. He doesn't leave it at that. And he says, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and last of all, bugs. Creepy stuff. Crawly stuff. Reptiles. Man will worship every manner of thing. He will come up and concoct any kind of philosophy, any kind of religious system, in an attempt to alleviate his pain to fill the darkness, to get rid of the void. He'll do everything except turn back to God. And Paul says, because of this, verse 24, therefore, because man has rejected me and become a religious nut seeking after false religions, 
God gave them over. All the religions of the world, all the philosophies of the world, they don't picture man ascending to God. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, these are reflective of men who have abandoned God and who have descended to the pit of false religion. They're worshiping all manner of things. They are putting the most preposterous things in the place of God in their life. They're believing incredible lies about what is supposed truth. That's what the Holy Spirit says through Paul. God's Spirit says this. God gave them over. Because man has abandoned God, God abandons man. He removes his hand of grace. And what does he abandon man to? Again, Paul writes and he says, God gives men over in the sinful desires of their hearts. In other words, he says, God lets the evil that's inside man now come out. God quits restraining it. He doesn't hold it back anymore. He lets the real vile evil of men's hearts begin to come to the surface now and evidence itself that men would experience the consequences of sin. Have you ever heard the quote? I'm sure you probably have. There but for the grace of God go I. Maybe you've even quoted that. If you've quoted it, you understand that you too possess the very real potential for incredible evil. You look at someone else's life who's involved in vile things, and you say, there but for the grace of God go I. You have an honest appraisal of you. The people I grieve for, the people I'm sorry for, are the people who say, I would never do that. Because those are the people who are sorely deceived. Those are the people who don't understand the depth of vile, corrupt sin in the heart of man that God gives him over to. Those are the people who are self-deceived, self-righteous, pious. Sin has consequences, doesn't it? When God gives men over to sin, sin has consequences. Why does God give men over? He's angry. It's his wrath being revealed day after day. God doesn't need to part the heavens. He doesn't need to cause some great cataclysmic event to strike the earth. Like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. God's revealing his wrath against Western society, against the United States, against America today. Pick up the newspaper and you'll see it. God's already revealing his wrath because men have rejected him. He picks up his hand and he says, go at it. In his anger, he judges men righteously. There's a passage in 
Isaiah, the 19th chapter, the 22nd verse. Mark it down and look at it later. God speaks through Isaiah and he says, I will strike Egypt with a plague. I will strike Egypt with a plague. Why? So that they will repent and I will heal them. Egypt. The 119th Psalm, the 71st verse, mark that one down, look it up later. The psalmist says, It was good that I was afflicted. Why was it good? That I might learn your ways. Why does God afflict men? Why does He turn them over? Why does His anger burn against men? Why does He let them go to sin? So that they will experience the depths of their corruption, so that they will bottom out, and hopefully come back. Repentant, saying, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Parents have had to do that, haven't they? A lot of us know parents who have had incorrigible children, rebellious children. The Bible calls it foolishness bound up in the heart of the child. And in their foolishness, they are persistent in getting their own way. And at some point, the parent says... All right, have it your way. I've done everything I know how to do. It's your life. You're making these choices. You're going to have to learn that there are consequences to your sinful choices. And the parent has no recourse except to back away. And in great grief and personal torment, let the child go in the hopes that the child will get so beat up, so bottomed out, so acquainted with the reality of this horrible world and their own sinfulness, that they will come back and they'll say, Mom, Dad, you were right. Forgive me. And you know, sometimes it works, doesn't it? Sometimes kids come back. Sometimes kids get a taste of what life is all about when they're allowed to experience the fruits of their own foolish choices, when they won't listen to discipline and wisdom. Sometimes they come back after just a few days. Sometimes they come back after a few months. Sometimes they come back after just a couple of years. Sometimes they'll come back after 20 years. And if the parents are still alive, they say, you know, you were right. I have paid a terrible price. And yet there are great numbers of people who bottom out who still will not turn around who still will not come back 
who still will not repent, who still will not say, God, forgive me and help me, please, and mean it. That's why God gives men over. So they'll bottom out and, and He can forgive them and heal them if they would just turn to Him. And some do. Most don't. Most don't. God gives men over. Paul says, He gives them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Not to external stuff. He gives them over to what's inside of them. He removes the restraints. And this horrible force called sin takes over. Sin has incredibly devastating consequences in one's life. Sin will destroy a person. Sin strips a man or a woman of their dignity as a human being. They fall to the level of, of animals. Sin will absolutely devastate the image of God in men. Sin will destroy a, a man's good name. Sin will steal any sense of joy and peace out of a person's life. And what does it leave in its wake when it's gone? After it's stolen the peace, sin leaves nothing but fear and guilt and shame. Sin is so powerful that it torments the conscience, devastates the conscience. The torment in some cases is so great that people have sought relief through suicide. They've not been able to bear the pain and the guilt. The only recourse they could come to is to kill themselves. The pain is so intense from sin because it's robbed their peace. Sin will literally destroy relationships. It will tear apart a marriage. It will utterly devastate a family. And whenever you see a marriage being torn apart, whenever you see a family in turmoil, it's because there's sin in that situation. These people have been given over to the sinful desires of their hearts to do what they want to do. And God will let them do it. And not only does it devastate families, but it'll destroy a nation. Look around. Look around at our society and our culture. We are teetering on the very brink of destruction in our country. Oh, no, we're not. No, we're not. The Democrats are on the horizon. They're going to rescue us from the Republicans. Just a few short years ago, it was the Republicans are going to rescue us from the Democrats. What we need is more Christians in government. No, those aren't the answers. We don't need Pat Robertson running for president. It'll destroy him. It'll kill him. 
You'll never survive. Those aren't the answers. The answer is in each and every single person repenting, turning back to God, saying, I'm a sinner, forgive me. That's where the answers lie. Our society is sick. And men seek to alleviate the consequences of sin. They seek to avoid the consequences of sin. Not to deal with the source. Not to ask for forgiveness. Not to acknowledge that they're sinners in need of repentance. But they run off in all manner of ways to to have the consequences of their sins smoothed over and alleviated somehow. All sorts of things, huh? Take a vacation. You'll feel better when you come back. Take this little drug. Take a drink. Snort this white powder. You'll feel so much better. <laughs> That's not the answer. And on and on and on it goes. Men, even in the attempt to alleviate the consequences of the emptiness and sin in their life, turn to their own new systems of religion and philosophy. Still no answer. Because they find that those are fruitless. And it's a a never-ending cycle of one thing after another to alleviate the pain of sin when men are turned over to it. All men have to do is turn back to God. Paul says that the men are turned over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. All manner of sexual impurity. What's the result of it? The degrading of their bodies with one another. You see how sin degrades man? How sin undermines his dignity? Tears away at the image of God in him? Sin. Sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Always seems to surface there. Sex. Somebody asked me the other day, why does it always seem to be sex? Because we're sexual beings. And as soon as you look away from God, you look to yourself. And sex is one of the strongest human drives, next to the drive to breathe, that there is. And so it's always going to surface in the sexual area. Always. He gives them over. And he says that they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Now, in some of the English translations, it says a lie. In the Greek, it says the lie. The definite article is there. There's one lie. And that lie has been perpetrated on man since the garden. Satan, from the very beginning, has been saying, you don't have to believe him. You don't have to worship him. You don't have to trust him. He's holding out on you. You can do it on your own. Have it your way. They've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they end up worshiping not the creator. They end up worshiping created things, things out of their own imaginations, rather than the creator, Paul says, listen to this, who is forever 
praised. Amen. Don't you love that? Kind of like a, a respite of fresh air in the midst of the garbage. And because they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, Paul goes on in the 26th verse and he says, because of this, Because of this, he has given them over to shameful lusts. That's an interesting word, shameful. Why does he use that word? Because it's the word at his disposal that could describe things indescribable. Things that you ought not to talk about, let alone think about. He gives men over to shameful lusts. Degrading things. And listen to this. He says it's gotten so bad, he says that even their females, now in your translations it says women. In the Greek, the word is female. It's a word devoid of dignity. It's a purely cold biological term. Even the females now of the species have what? They've exchanged, they've abandoned natural relations for unnatural ones. It's gotten so bad, even the females are doing it. Now, doesn't take too much smarts to know what he's talking about. If you still haven't picked up on it, we'll get to it shortly. But you see, why does he say even the females? Because the female of the species is always the last to be corrupted. It's the females that are led into the corruption. They're not designed to be leaders. God has designed the female to be led. And when the male of the species is so corrupted, when it's gotten to such a horrible place, even now the women are doing it. That's the meaning of that passage. He says, in the same way, in the same way the males of the species, it says men, but the word is a different word than we normally translate men. Again, it's a word that has attached to it a purely cold, biological description, void of any sense of dignity. He says, even in the same way, the males have abandoned the natural use of the females and they are inflamed with lust for Paul would use to describe being on fire, either with passion in a heterosexual way, or being on fire for the Lord. It's a unique word that describes burning out, exhausting. And the word for lust is also a unique word. It is not the normal word epithumios, which describes desires and passions and so forth. It's a rather unique word that talks about an insatiable hunger. Insatiable. In the same way, the males abandon 
the use of the females. And they are burning out with an insatiable hunger for one another. Kind of makes it a little more dramatic, doesn't it? Gets the point across a little bit better, doesn't it? They are committing indecent acts with other men. Again, Paul says they're indecent. They're not, I can't describe them. You say, well, now wait a minute, this is, this is, I, I, I'm not sure I can buy this. Do you know that on the average, the average male, homosexual, has about 300 partners a year? I know, that sounds unbelievable. Not always the same person either. Many of those partners are had in the same day. In the same day. It is not uncommon for an average male homosexual to visit the hospital to have all manner of foreign objects removed from deep within him. It is not unusual for male homosexual to call upon the services of a physician to remove the limbs of another male homosexual from his body. It is so gross that it requires medical attention, emergency medical attention. You see, the lusts are so vile. The restraints have been taken off. The homosexual lust is so incredibly insatiable that no heterosexual person knows or understands or can even relate to homosexual lust. It's on a whole different level. It's so vile. Because why? The restraints have been removed. That's why Paul describes it and uses the words as a burning out insatiable hunger that craves constantly to be filled. There's unrelenting. It's a thing that's on their minds continuously. They've been given over to it. I know, it's hard to believe. If you talk to an emergency room physician from any major city in which there is a hospital in the city with a large male homosexual population, or you talk to the chief of police from that same city, or if you talk to the city coroner, none of which have to be Christian, they will categorically testify to you that what I'm saying is true. It is unnatural. It is not God's design. And when men abandon the author of nature, they abandon the order of nature. We're talking about homosexuality. Now, I realize in a congregation this size, that I have made some strong and difficult statements, and some people leave as a result of them. I also know that there are some of you who are mad at me for any number of reasons. I want you to know that I welcome your letters. 
I'm prepared for them, because next week we're going to look in depth at what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. Now, you may not want to come. It's gross. And I'm not going to get into any more graphic detail than I already have, because I don't want you running out here to vomit, because that's what you'll do. It is so incredibly disgusting. And I know that there are many questions, because I know and I'm going to tell you about some of the lies that are foisted on society about the homosexual. And I know people here who say, well, wait a minute, I work with this guy, and he seems to be the nicest guy, and, you know, just quiet, keeps to himself, no problems. You certainly can't be describing my friend. Yes, I am. If you look into that person's personal, private life, you'll see these very things in clear evidence. You have questions? Write them to me in your letter, because I'll answer them next weekend. You see, this is God's word. This is what God's saying. These aren't my opinions. I'm just fleshing out for you what he says in his word already. This stuff is not natural. It's a result of God giving men over to what? His sinful passions. To sexual impurity for the degrading of his body with other men. God gives men over to it in the hopes that they'll get so sick of it that they'll bottom out and they'll say, God, I hate this. Help me, please. Absolutely incredible. Do you know that there is no known species of animal that lives with homosexuality within the context of its species? None. It's only man that's devised this. Only man has figured out how to pervert God's order. It's only man. Clever, isn't he? Clever man is. Let me share with you some of the lies about homosexuality. It is not harmful to society. That's a good one. Another one is it is not violent. No violence associated at all with the homosexual community. Just a few years ago, in the city of San Francisco, the city sponsored a series of seminars to teach the homosexual community safe sadomasochistic sex. They were killing each other. And someone in city government said, we better, we better do something to stop this. We better teach them how to have safe sadomasochistic sex, so they don't hurt each other. Sound reasoning. Good logic. It's not violent. Sure, some years ago, the coroner of the city of New York retired and wrote a book, and I believe his name was Halpern. And in his book, and this guy's not a Christian, he says, I have performed some 60,000 autopsies. 60,000. And he says, and I, could, I can look at a body, I can just look at it, and I can tell you if that person was killed as a result of a homosexual murder. 
because the results are so terrifyingly devastating and so brutal. Not violent. The sociologists, the psychologists, the psychiatrists would tell us homosexuality is not threatening to society and the homosexual community is not violent. They would have us believe that being homosexual is just as natural as being heterosexual. It's kind of like being left-handed or right-handed. That's the analogy that's used. The people are born that way. They're not born that way. That's a lie. That's a lie right out of the pit of hell. We're also told and expected to believe that homosexuality does not harm the family. It ends the family. We're told and expected to believe that homosexuality is neither a symptom of nor a cause of societal decline. And yet, if you study history closely, and you study the decline of civilizations in the forefront, just before the decline, you will invariably find homosexuality in the forefront. And not only is it being practiced, but it's being heartily approved of by the rest of the society. In every case that I've studied. And yet, we're told that no problem. It's okay. We're also told and expected to believe that it is literally impossible to take a person from a homosexual orientation and expect him to be transformed to a heterosexual orientation. It's impossible. That's what the psychologists say. And that to try to do so is ethically questionable. Now, I can tell you personally, as long as I've been either the associate pastor or the pastor of this church, that I have counseled people from a homosexual orientation, some very successfully, some not so successfully. Of the ones who've been counseled successfully, two of them are married and have children and are living fulfilled lifestyles. It is possible. God does heal people. Paul says in the fifth chapter of Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. No matter how far down you are, no matter how far gone you are, no matter how confused you are, no matter how gross and heinous your sin has been, if you will turn and commit your way to Him, His Grace will heal you. God loves the sinner. And he hates the sin. I'm not up here condemning homosexual people. I'm up here saying God's going to send you to hell unless you repent. People say, wait a minute, wait, aren't there churches full of homosexual people who love Jesus? 
there are churches full of homosexual people who say they love Jesus, and practicing a homosexual lifestyle is totally contraindicated. It is impossible to be a Christian, born again, spirit-filled, and live a homosexual lifestyle. It is impossible, Paul says. Don't you know that we, we who are Christians, have died to sin? How can we therefore live in it any longer? Can't. It's a contradiction. And they received in their persons the due penalty of their perversion. The due penalty. They get what they deserve. God's wrath. And that due penalty ranges from incredible deep personal pain and emptiness to fear and shame and guilt to physical disease and deformity. There is a whole category of venereal diseases peculiar to the homosexual community. There is a cancer that is peculiar to the homosexual community. Some of those diseases are now spilling out into the heterosexual community and affecting people just because they happen to be people. God's wrath is being poured out on this country, on men because they've rejected him, and no one's standing up and saying, Enough! Repent! People are saying, have safe sex. No one's saying it's wrong. Everybody's saying, have safe sex. It's okay, it's cool, it's a free country. Someone told me Oprah Winfrey had a show the other night, and, and there were all manner of weird lifestyles being talked about. And two Christians, one person I guess on the show, and the other person called in, both of them were shut down when they attempted to say this stuff is wrong. Yeah. Incredible, isn't it? The statement, apparently, I didn't see it, but from what I was told, the statement was, well, we live in a free country. We should be able to do whatever we want, certainly. Let's just murder anybody we want. Let's just rob and steal and rape and pillage and plunder anybody we want. It's a free country, isn't it? Why should there be any limits to my personal freedom? Incredible. You see, that's the very mentality that Paul talks about next. That's where it leads to. Paul says, furthermore, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which ought not to be done. And he has a whole raft of things, a whole list of things. And you read through them and you say, yeah, boy, that ought not to be done. I agree. Boy, that's gross. That's terrible. No one's in disagreement with that. But this is what people are doing. He says they have become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. Not that they've just become affected by it, not that they're just touched by it. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and malice and deceit. They're full of these things. He says they are gossips and slanderers, God-haters, insolent, meaning they have absolutely no respect for any kind of authority. And not only are they insolent, but they're arrogant, 
prideful about it. And not only that, but they boast about it. Boastful. And then he says, incredibly, if, his, if, his, if it weren't bad enough, he says they invent ways of doing evil. Before I became a Christian, I traveled around the world, and I'll never forget this. It left a mark indelibly on my mind. I do not recommend that you do this. I was in Holland, and I went to Amsterdam. And I went through what's known as the Red Light District. Not to partake, just to tour. I want you to know that. <laughs> I wasn't totally given over to ultimate depravity. But as I was touring through the district, I stopped in at a, at a, a sex shop. And my curiosity was piqued, and I went in, and I wished I had never gone in. I was incredibly overwhelmed by the ways and the things that men have invented to do evil. I wished I'd never seen those things. They invent ways of doing evil. Their children disobey their parents. How did that get in there? In a society when God has given men over to sin, the children are still even affected. They're not immune. You see the rebelliousness and the sin right down into the next generations, and the children are rebellious, turning away from their parents. And my gosh, you see that today with the violence in the youth today. It's just absolutely incredible. Unlike anything we've ever seen. Children are rebelling against their parents. Paul finishes up. We're almost done. He says they are senseless. It means they have no sense. They don't know what's right. They're faithless. Their word's no good. You can't trust anybody. Does that sound vaguely familiar? They are heartless. That means they have no, no human affections. We see that most clearly reflected today in the millions of women who are killing their babies through abortion. And not so much as even worried about it. It'll come back to haunt them. It always does. And if the child is fortunate enough to make it out of the birth canal, it has to put up with the next several years of incredible abuse. Verbal, emotional, personal. Shoved off in a corner, ignored, beat up. Heartless. If that weren't enough, we see husbands beating on wives. And we see wives beating on husbands. If that weren't enough, we see children growing up becoming adults, and I use that word in quotes. And if their parents are still alive, they're beating up on their parents. Incredible. It doesn't stop there. Not only are they heartless, they are ruthless. And our society makes such light of all of this that we even have a movie now called Ruthless People. And it's supposed to be a comedy. Ruthless. All these things are evidence in our society, folks. These are the signs of the wrath of God being revealed, God turning men over to sin and their consequences. And then he finishes off. Listen to this. He says, and although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. Do men really know that? Yes. How do you know? 
I see so many freaked out people. I see so many people who are living in fear and guilt and anxiety. Anxiety is the result of repressed guilt. They won't confess their sin. They won't acknowledge they're wrong. When you lie to somebody, when you betray somebody, what does that create in you automatically? Do you feel guilty? Sure. You don't feel joy and peace, do you? No. And until you confess that and deal with that and get that cleared up, it nags you, doesn't it? It nags you. It nags you. And it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. People know they're guilty. And they know they're, in, they're standing in for judgment. They know it. Against this list of things, there are, we have laws. And if we don't have a law, we certainly have a social conscience against every one of them. It's nice to tell the truth, isn't it? Sure it is. But look at this. Not only do they continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to be involved in sin. It's one thing to see it in somebody else's life and point it out and call it sin. But it's a whole other thing to be in the midst of sin and to validate somebody else in the midst of it. To applaud it in somebody else's life. To approve of it. And our whole society is doing it. Turn on the television any night of the week and you see sin being glorified. And people going, wow, wasn't that neat. Applauding it. The movie studios are coming out with movie pictures, and they've been doing this for years, that glorify what? Sin. There's adultery. There's fornication. There's every sort of moral decadence. There's violence. You name it. It's in the movies. And people go to the movies, and they just suck it up. And they go, wow. Wow, wasn't that a great movie? I think I'll go tell my friends about it. People in the midst of sin approving it and applauding it. Now I have to tell you something, and we'll be finished. God has convicted my heart about this very last issue. A number of things, but this last issue in particular. See, because I love television. I love the movies. I haven't been to a movie in, I don't know, roughly a year now. last one I saw was The Color Purple. And I've been wanting to see Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I've been wanting to see all these other flicks that are being advertised that everyone's telling me about. Oh, you've got to see this, you've got to see that. And this week I was meditating on that last part of the 32nd verse of the first chapter of Romans. And God spoke to my heart. He said, this is you, and you're a pastor. You're a Christian. You're a member of the church. And you're going out there and approving of sin. And I want you to know that I have personally chosen to disqualify myself from the movies. I watch very little television anyway anymore. But I've personally chosen to disqualify myself because I found, realistically speaking, 
That's what I end up doing, applauding evil. I can't do it. Now immediately the thought comes to some, hmm, wonder if I should do that. Gosh, if I do, that, that's going to leave a big void in my life. A big, how am I going to be entertained? What, where am I going to find some fun? Gosh, I don't know. You probably have to go to mini church. If the shoe fits, and you know the rest. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you've spoken to my heart. And Father, as Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, Lord, from evil. Father, I pray that your spirit would speak to many hearts this morning. People who are Christian, people who profess to be Christian, people who are not Christian. But Lord, each and every one of us who are involved in sin, who've separated ourselves from you, and who are experiencing your wrath, your judgment, the consequences of our sin. Lord, show us those foolish areas in our life. Help us to understand your forgiving grace and that you'll heal us and bring us back into a fulfilling relationship with you. Lord, that you will fill the emptiness, that you will fill the darkness, that you will give our life meaning. Nothing else. We commit our way to you this morning, and we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name. And the congregation said, Amen. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward? To